Ramos, have you seen the Humanity Plus website? And before you answer that question, let me ask you this. Are we still in the Garden of Eden? And we'll unpack well, that. The, yeah, well, the answer to that question is pretty simple. No, just take a look around. Uh, mm. We are not in the Garden of Eden anymore. And that that's interesting because there was a... There was a a popular contemporary music uh, song, video, whatever, by a contemporary Christian artist. And the name of, or at least a lyric within the song said, I want to be in Eden. Mm. I want to be naked and unashamed. Hmm. And that, in one sense, that's the absolute worst thing that we can ever pray. Uh, is to be back in the Garden of Eden because that would put us in a a sub-eschatological state of affairs so that instead we should say we want to be in Christ. Mm. And that alone is now where we find our paradise. And um, yeah, so... Um, let me ask you this with the humanity plus website. I'm sure people are really confused by now. Don't worry. We'll unpack this and why I asked that question specifically. Can you unpack for them? Why I asked you that question and what conversation I'm thinking of, and it'll be a recurring theme for our listeners that you'll see throughout this topic of transhumanism and what we're going to be discussing today. Oh, good point. Well, the reason why is because uh, the Humanity Plus uh, website uh, really is purporting to advance humanity forward. And therefore, we need to ask the question, what kind of advancement uh, does Humanity Plus envision for us? Humanity Plus is basically a futuristic website, meaning that they're focused on futurism and they're focused on transhumanism and posthumanism. And the whole notion of humanity plus is this idea that humanity is going to advance into the future and basically create an ideal world, uh, a, a paradise for mankind, some kind of idealistic kind of life, uh, longevity and and those kinds of things. And so that's why... Your question is relevant and really right on the money, brother. Yeah, because in the garden, you've got Satan asking or kind of perpetuating this idea that you can transcend humanity, evolve into, you know, basically your own, you are, you can become God in so many ways, right? And um, I think uh, you be you will become like God if you eat of the tree. And I think as we get into this topic, transhumanism, and you look at that website, and we'll define transhumanism in a second, it seems to be that same conversation now playing out on the world stage. So maybe to roll this along forward, can you just give us a quick definition of what transhumanism is? You kind of just did, but we'd like to hear you unpack that a little bit more and bring it all center stage for us and we can continue Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and maybe, uh, Ryan, maybe I can just begin also by qualifying, uh, kind of the obvious question, uh, sure. in terms, 
and just in just in terms of why are we covering transhumanism? And the reason why is because, well, you know, as much as we talk about eschatology, as much as we talk about uh, biblical theology and apologetics and those kinds of things, eschatology, um, we want to take our theology into the real world and and to understand that uh, we are to bring our biblical worldview to bear upon what is happening in uh, in the real world, all around us, in society, in the world, and and the way that people are, are thinking in our society today, especially along the lines of technology, and that's where transhumanism comes in. When we think about transhumanism, what transhumanism basically is, is the idea of augmenting uh, the human ex- experience, augmenting or enhancing the human experience through technology. And so transhumanism is focused on using technology to aid and to enhance and to advance our experience as humans. And transhumanism, not to be confused with post-humanism, which is, uh, which is another subject. So uh, we can talk about the things that are affected in transhumanism versus the things that are uh, that are uh, in view with post-humanism. Uh, those two things, although they're related, they are different, and the objectives are different, but I would say they're both part of the big umbrella of futurism. And futurism really has, for its fundamental worldview, this idea that through technology, we're going to reach a certain point in human history where there is going to be what Ray Kurzweil calls a singularity or what uh, another uh, futurist calls an event horizon. And this moment that futurists are predicting is this concept where technology and biology will be so incredibly um, intertwined that there will come a point where they will be somewhat indistinguishable. And so... um, you know, really wild claims that futurism is is uh, is maintaining and advancing, and I think from that perspective, because these are such wild claims, uh, we have to care uh, as Christians. And so that's what technological singularity is. It's that the tech side of it and the organic side of it meet in the middle. They're intertwined. One is indistinguishable from the other. And the idea there then is to say, this will progress humanity even further. It will address limitations. It will address diseases. And, and I mean, how, how do we think about this technological singular, singularity of the organic meeting the, the technological? Great question. Uh, uh, this is a this is a fundamental question because uh, exactly what you said here. Um, it's futurism is talking about the development of these technologies and how these technologies are basically going to apply and affect human life uh, through biological and technological integration. And so, right now, we're seeing we're we're actually living in it right now. We're not waiting for something. But even though there is that, that point of singularity off into the distance, 
But even right now, we are experiencing and living through a transhumanist phase of human history. So that right now, technology has entered our lives in such a way that we have computers and tablets and smartphones and smartwatches and smart homes, and we have smart cars, and all of that technology is um, what we could call uh, sort of extra biological, meaning that most of that technology is above the skin, so to speak. Uh, we're, we're talking about technology that can be worn, so wearable tech. Uh, we, we're talking about technology uh, that is surrounding us in our environment. So we're using things like smart speakers. Uh, we have ring doorbells that now uh, connect to the inter internet and, and, and have video and sound. And we can easily access and manipulate that technology through smartphone. I mean, just if you think about that, Ryan, I mean, that is incredible technological advancement right there. Um, is technology new to the Bible? Let's say, does the Bible speak at all about technology? And of course, we would say yes. Basic technology, primitive technology, uh, at points, technology in the Bible it, it obviously increased and enhanced to some degree. Uh, men became, um, we went from building a, ba a very basic ziggurat structure in the Tower of Babel to, in, during the Egyptian period, building really sophisticated type of structures and, and ancient skyscrapers, I guess we can say, in the pyramids, right? And then on through the centuries of creating more and more sophisticated tools and, uh, and different uh, means of technology that were bound to the old era, we can make a distinction very clearly here in terms of the ex what, what some have called exponential growth in technology. That just a couple hundred years ago, we went from an agrarian ecology, we went from traveling at the speed of horseback, and we went from communicating with pen and letter. Whereas now we communicate at the speed of light, we travel at the speed of sound, and we clothe ourselves with the very synthetic compounds that we create in a lab. I mean, this is the new reality. And it is, it is, an, it is an amazing thing uh, that can be used either for good or for evil. Uh, and so this is a, this is a huge conversation. And obviously, Ryan, this is but the very first of many episodes on this issue because it is so vast. It's a very complex one, isn't it? And I think if we could just go back for a second and knowing yeah. that it's going to be a complex topic and we're going to talk a lot about it, can you just restate why it's important for the church to understand this? How do we think about it? And, and what does this really mean for us in terms of paying attention and being able to speak to it? Oh, absolutely. You, you know, um, when we think about the application of transhumanism to the church, I would just want to state from the very outset that we ignore this issue to our peril. I mean, we think that right now teenagers are absorbed in their technology we think that right now teenagers have a hard time paying attention and have a very short attention span and have a hard time making eye contact and have developed all sorts of social awkward type of, you know, um, social skills that are awkward and are 
uh, affected because of the addiction to technology, to gaming, the addiction to constantly being present on social media and those kinds of things. And obviously book after book after book has been written on that. There's, um, uh, there's a, there's a woman, her name is Susan Greenfield who has written a book on how technology is literally changing our brain. And she talks about, for example, one of the issues is in our own uh, modern day uh, context is that we are witnessing things like the disappearance of play. And so children are no longer outdoors playing, making tree houses and building things in the backyard and jumping off fences and, 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 you know, shooting BB guns and things like that. Those days are gone. And, uh, one author went on to say that he has noticed the disappearance of laughter, a uh, children's laughter in the public square. The children are just no longer heard laughing outside because they're all inside strapped to the technology or in front of a screen. And, uh, that, that, that's a significant sociological shift. Um, and so, but as we think about the application to the church, this is going to be huge for the way that we allow technology to intrude into our families, into our homes, and what that's going to look like in terms of discipling our children for the future. Uh, so that, you know, more and more, um, we will have to disciple our kids in the area of keeping them, keeping them grounded on such things as reality. Um, it's kind of that simple because right now it seems as if for the foreseeable future, just kind of Ryan for right now, laying aside the theological stuff and we'll get to that, right? Things like the image of God, but just for the foreseeable future, we're looking at virtual uh, reality really taking over for the next five to 10 years at least. And, um, and, uh, all kinds of industries and institutions and cultural applications are all now going to a virtual application, a virtual interface. And how is that going to affect uh, our lives? Uh, at what point in the church are we going to begin to disciple people that are, um, you know, are deciding that it's okay to bring in virtual reality into your home? Virtual reality is an amoral thing, just like a video game. It's not necessarily a moral issue. It can become a moral issue in the way in which you choose to operate that technology. Uh, and so these are the kind of dynamics. I mean, as a pastor, perhaps I have a unique perspective. I've actually sat in the counseling office with marriages that are on the brink of destruction because the husband is addicted to gaming. And spends hours and hours gaming, you know, Call of Duty or something else. And it's literally destroying their home. And it's literally like you took something that, that is, has no necessary moral component and you've turned it into something that is completely being used as an evil device in your home. And that boils down to an issue of stewardship. It, it boils down to an issue of. Uh, you know, priorities in your home and learning how to plan and learning what to do with your time and walking in sobriety and maturity and those kinds of things. So it has a huge, um, has a huge impact, uh, Ryan, in the way that the church disciples its people. Uh, and also, of course, uh, as we transition into the theological, uh, concept of technology and, and what it's purporting, what 
a website like Humanity Plus, uh, what they're saying and how that impacts what you've been taught in church your whole life, right? That as, as it pertains to a perfect world, that as it pertains to some kind of advancement, literally as it pertains to changing your, uh, your biology, uh, you have been told for 2,000 years that that happens exclusively, let's say, through the resurrection. But here you have you know, the Humanity Plus people and many, many, many others telling you that, no, 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 we can achieve, uh, we can achieve new levels of longevity. We can extend our lives. We can enhance our brains. We can start uh, curing diseases. And so it really is going to uh, challenge us fundamentally in what we believe in certain areas of anthropology, for example. Wow. That's incredible. You know, I saw a data point that came out and was relative to video games and 42% of people tend to find new relationships online, exclusively online. So meaning that in the old way, people would meet people in person and physicality. And now through a medium like gaming, which I'm not condemning, I work in the gaming industry, but, uh, you meet people online and then you've got now the remote work phenomenon happening, but then you've also got the metaverse happening. And so all roads kind of point to this digital online world where people, maybe that is, that is also going to drive this, this even further. Uh, would you, would you say that's, that's pretty accurate? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's the way that we're going to connect. Uh, it's the way that we're going to feel uh, as if we're getting meaningful interaction with people. Um, in a sense, uh, people will derive their identity from the technology. And um, we think that we're having issues with identity right now mm -hmm. uh, in society in terms of everything going on with the gender confusion of this age and all of those social, socialistic and Marxist agendas that we're seeing rolled out right in front of our eyes. Uh, just wait until you can bend reality to make it whatever you want to be whoever, you know, um, I don't know if you got a chance to watch, um, uh, Ryan, the, the commercial by, uh, by, uh, Mark Zuckerberg for the metaverse when they transitioned from Facebook to meta, but I watched the entire thing. It was one hour long. I watched the entire thing. because so I wanted to make sure I heard every, everything, um, everything that they had to say about this massive, because I knew what this meant. They presented it as, as such a completely docile issue. Uh, the avatars, for example, that they, that they showed on the show, these avatars or on, on this, uh, uh, advertisement, these avatars were cartoonish. They were childlike. Uh, everything looked like little, little teddy bears and ponies and you know, stuff like that. Uh, it was completely benign. Uh, but uh, Zuckerberg, in that, in that uh, one-hour presentation announcement, he, he said, you will be whoever you want to be. You will do whatever you want to do. You will go wherever you want to go, whenever you want to go, or whenever you want to do it. It's, it's a total, it's a total uh, a pseudo kind of, uh, uh, you know, sort of a pseudo creation. It's kind of like you get to play God in your own little private virtual world. And what do you think 
kids are going to do with that? What do you think teenagers are going to do with that? What do you think is going to happen when the metaverse, which I mentioned the avatars, and we've talked about this, Ryan, but the avatars uh, by people like Unreal Engine 5, these avatars are so realistic. They're, they're terrifyingly real. And can you imagine, fast forward 10 years from now, uh, what they're going to have is going to be mind-bending. Okay, But imagine that you can be a certain celebrity for the day. You can be your favorite pop star. You can be your favorite model or your favorite, you know, whoever, politician or whoever. <laughs> I don't know who would want to be a politician, but you know what I mean? You, you, you can be anyone you want, whenever you want to do whatever you want to do. I mean, that kind of radical alternative reality um, is just a recipe for, for utter destruction for our society, I believe. And therefore, I think we need to start speaking about it. Um, I guess I'd also want to qualify this entire uh, episode and even this entire approach to say we don't in any way have sort of a definitive answer here today. Uh, We do not in any way pretend that we somehow have the apologetic to all of this. All of this is moving fast, changing fast. All of this is coming at us at light speed. Uh, the factors are changing daily. Uh, every year, things are changing. So we, we, we have to be honest about the fact that we are literally right at the very beginning stages of all this. And I think apologetics, fast forward, fast forward apologetics 50 years from today, and they'll look back at our time uh, and point out all the different places where we uh, maybe didn't, didn't have enough foresight or we didn't see this coming or didn't, we didn't see that coming. So we have to really be realistic about the fact that, hey, this is an area that we know we don't, we don't all have the answers, but we certainly need to start developing and sharpening our thoughts concerning these very things. So it's important. Definitely. Now in our notes, we've, we've got a few areas that we need to address where Christian theology interacts or is impacted here. And that's anthropology, eschatology, and soteriology. Let's start with anthropology and unpack how that interacts and and how we should be thinking about it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, We started out talking about the Garden of Eden. Well, obviously, it's there in the Genesis text that we are told that God is created in man's image. Now, isn't this interesting? When we think about the image of God, we're typically talking about the image of God giving us meaning and dignity and value. And so we use the image of God for arguments pertaining to things like abortion, right? We use the image of God, let's say, to talk about man uh, that is created in the image of God. Therefore, the way that we treat man is a direct reflection on what we think man is. You know, um, uh, you know uh, the book of James tells us, how is it uh, that we can bless God and then turn around and curse our brother who's created in the image of, of God, <laughs> So obviously the image of God gives us dignity and dignifies us as human beings. But the image of God is also much, much more than that. The image of God is also itself an eschatological reality. And so in one sense, um, Ryan, these concepts, these two points are intertwined. Anthropology and eschatology go together. Um, But when we think about the application of the image of God to futurism and transhumanism, here at this point, we're really now talking about post-humanism because you understand transhumanism is not the end goal. And there is a debate even within the futurist community 
the debate is, is the post-humanist uh, conversation even worth having? Are we really going to achieve humanity 2.0, as some people are even calling it? Uh, but a lot of people, that uh, right now I'm reading a book called The, the uh, Transhumanist Reader uh, by Max Moore, uh, Natasha Moore as well, but Max Moore, and it's a whole collection of scientists. Many of these people are featured on this Humanity Plus uh, website. But in this, um, in this book, post-humanism uh, is featured large. And uh, there's, even a, uh, there's even a chapter entitled, Why I Want to Be a Post-Humanist. And it all has to do, Ryan, with eschatology. Um, I am amazed. I'm literally going through the entire book right now, and I'm just surveying the book for eschatological language. This is what I've been talking about now for some years that the future of Christian apologetics really is eschatology. The new wave of paganism is giving us an alternative eschatology, a future of man, how man advances. We're going to advance spiritually through some pantheistic vision, our union with the universe and things like that. And post-humanism is also giving us an eschatological vision. We are being told, according to post-humanists, that we will self-advance, that we are going to self-evolve. Um, you know, I've been doing apologetics since 1996. And I remember in the late 90s and the early 2000s, one of the main things that we were tackling back then, and obviously before then, 70s and 80s as well, uh, is evolution. And so, you know, <laughs> you know um, I'm getting ready to speak at the ARC with the Ark Encounter, with Ken Ham. Well, that's where ministries like Ken Ham and the creation uh, ministry of Henry Morris and other people, this is where, where those kind of creationist ministries thrived because we were all battling evolution. Uh, but what transhumanism and posthumanism and futurism is saying is actually anti-evolution. I don't know if many people know that. They're actually saying we are going to do away with evolution. We are going to bypass evolution. We, we're going to self-evolve. We are no longer going to succumb to the process of evolution, naturally speaking. We are going to actually bypass our evolution and self-evolve and self-advance. <laughs> so now, if you're just talking about evolutionary biology, you are way behind the times for many scientists. You're way behind the times. You're not understanding that everything through technology is all about doing away with evolution and bypassing evolution um, altogether. And so, again, there we are talking about post-humanism, humanity becoming something else, giving ourselves a natural longevity, replacing our body parts. There are people mapping out the human brain. There are people ready absolutely ready to completely ma manipulate genetics. Uh, and this gets wilder and wilder and wilder. And I understand the temptation for a lot of people to sit there and cry conspiracy theory because this, this even gets, Ryan, this even gets to crossing different species together because we're able to now genetically manipulate things. So we're talking about human cloning. We're, we're, we're talking about chimeric inventions in the lab where we're literally creating uh, uh, some sort of 
you know, um, spliced species together with human, with the human genome. I mean, this is utterly unthinkable, right? And so we have to understand what the image of God actually is. And when does something cease to be the image of God? And that's an important thing that you mentioned on the conspiracy theory front. It, is there a way to engage in conversation about this that you'd recommend so as to avoid seemingly being so just kind of in the clouds, you know, in the conversation so it actually can be a productive conversation? I mean, what are your thoughts there? How, how does a Christian actually engage in a conversation like this? That's a tough question to answer. Um, for me, per, I, can, I, I guess I could just tell people my, the advice that, that I would give them based on what I've done. Um, and what I've done is I've tried to isolate those thinkers in the futurist community that have the most support, most backing, supposedly the most credential and credibility. Okay. And so I'm trying not to be out in the fringes of the internet looking for the wildest claims and things like that. But when you look at Google and Apple and Microsoft and you see these massive tech companies um, literally uh, spending billions of dollars uh, on, on certain research and stuff like that. And when you see the importance of somebody like Ray Kurzweil and, and, and people in that, in that company, you see what's going on in TED Talk uh, events and stuff like that then you'll start kind of understanding, okay, who are these futurist voices that are being funded? And I think that's important because that's going to end up kind of transitioning into the real world, right? Like the, one of the reasons we take Elon Musk serious is because we've seen that Elon Musk actually brings things to fruition. He actually creates a smart, a smart car. He actually um, affects uh, the real world. He, he actually has, in fact, launched his Starlink program, um, giving internet to the entire globe is really his ambition, right? And so when, when these uh, leading voices in the futurist community are talking, we need to listen uh, because, and then we need to identify uh, who these trendsetters are and what are their projections. And so we have somebody like Elon Musk telling us that his number one ambition, his number one project is not Tesla. Uh, in a recent interview, Elon Musk says that his number one priority right now, he says he's working feverishly on this, is Neuralink. It is putting a computer chip in your head. And, <laughs> and that's where we can get cartoonish and almost sci-fi and almost like <laughs> we're talking about a sci-fi movie. And so people tend to you know, roll their eyes or whatever, but I don't know. I think we're kind of getting into a time now where people aren't really rolling their eyes anymore. I think people are now seeing, wow. I mean, they're kind of capable of this now. And what do we do when all of a sudden there are implantables that have been unleashed all over society? Uh, and in fact, right now, uh, especially in places like Denmark and Switzerland and other places um, you have, you have thousands of people. I think the numbers in the hundreds of thousands now who are walking around with implantable technology in their, in their skin, under the skin. And so this technology is real. It's here. It's coming. It's being developed. Everybody's trying to break the mold, break the next sort of boundary and the next level of this kind of technology. 
so what I've done is I've researched some of the cutting edge voices and tried to follow them in certain bibliography, uh, you know, uh, kind of look at their research. Yuval Noah Harari is somebody I've bought all of his books. I've researched all of Yuval Noah Harari's stuff. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari is very important because he has the backing of a lot of heads of state. And Yuval Noah Harari has projected into the future that, in fact, we are heading into a post-humanist world. So Yuval Noah Harari is not satisfied with transhumanism. He is, in fact, talking about post-humanism, where we are going to create humanity 2.0. And I recently saw a video with Yuval sitting around with a group of his students talking about that we need to create the next set of ethics for the world. That, that we will have to decide where the technology um, uh, makes what kind of ethical decisions for us. And I think that's a huge question that, that and that raises a huge question and that, that brings up a huge issue because you must understand in this whole transhumanist futurist uh, conversation, it is not just about a better sm- smartwatch. Um, Everything, uh, Ryan, is transitioning to the tech dictating to us uh, things like um, how, how we're supposed to feel, how we're supposed to think, uh, what's best for us, what decisions we're supposed to make. Um, can I give just maybe one example of this? Sure, sure, please do. Uh, if, 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 you, if you look at, for example, um, if you look at, for example, a, a recent series that was done by uh, Robert Downey Jr., Iron Man. Um, it's called um, AI, and uh, oh, I forgot the exact name of it. But uh, there, there's a project that where they're feeding an an AI computer thousands and thousands and thousands of movie scripts. So they're taking movie scripts, feeding it into a software that they have created with an algorithm with an AI component. So that the software then produces its own script. And Hollywood, I can't believe this, but can you believe this? Hollywood then spends thousands of dollars taking that movie script artificially produced by a robot and trying to literally act it out and live it out in the studio. And the film that is produced is purported to be a film produced and generated by an AI mind and the humans are basically following suit. In the example of the episode that was shown, the particular film they were creating was telling us that the AI algorithm was showing humanity that it's far too masculine. <laughs> and, that that was, and that that was the conclusion that the producers came to. That the, that the AI software is trying to tell us something about our society that it's detecting, that it's too masculine and so that we need to reduce the masculinity in our society. Unbelievable. And um, like I said, just, you know, a massive amount of, of, of money and time and energy is going into these kind of projects where we follow the AI. We do not. The, the AI does not follow us. We follow the AI. That is the major movement right now. So what you're saying basically is that we're, 
we're building systems to tell us how to live almost to the degree that those systems will then determine ethical behavior, laws, social norms. Is that what you mean? Absolutely. And obviously what they're, what the big uh, sort of ethics argument is now comprised of is, well, if it's something that we ourselves programmed, it, can we truly say that it is the AI? Because we program the AI. And so, you know, uh, uh, computer scientists and cutting edge, you know, tech gurus and stuff are arguing that there is going to come a point, a threshold uh, Ray Kurzweil talks about this um, in his uh, in his book, um, "The Age of Spiritual Machines," <laughs> is the title of his book. Uh, but he talks about that there's coming very soon. He predicts 2030 will be a time when AI generated computers will claim full autonomous consciousness, and that they will be assigned legally assigned personhood. And so. Uh, <laughs> I mean, these are these this this is the contours of the kinds of thinkings that is going on in these futurist communities that we're we're staring in the face of a future where computers are going to be given personhood. Matter of fact, if you look at the at the Humanist Declaration, I don't know if you have it there, but if you look at the if you look at the the um, Humanity Plus website, if you look at the Transhumanist Declaration. They're already preparing you uh, for this very thing with the language of um, the possibility of other life forms. Uh, let me give you just one example. In articles or paragraph seven, they say we advocate the well being of all sentience, including humans. <laughs> so we just, you know, uh, you talk about the image of God, we just become an item on the list non-human animals, and any future artificial intellects, modified life forms, or other intelligences which technological and scientific advance may give rise. I'll, 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 leave, I'll, let you, I'll let you comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> My mind's in a black hole right now, so I'm just trying to escape out of that and, and even process this. I, it's going a million miles a minute because if, uh, if AI then is allowed to become autonomous and then thereby kind of beget one, one AI begets another form of AI and it's going to serve moral purposes what would this mean I mean, what does this mean for worship right like how does this take us in that direction can can you do you see where i'm going with that what, how do we think about it like from that from that perspective yeah it, it really uh, boils down to um the creator creature distinction and the creator creature relation and that's what the image of God is also all about. And that's why it's so important for us to prepare ourselves to reject all forms of pantheism and panantheism, right? What's pantheism? Well, pantheism is that everything is God, right? And so can we, can we imagine a future in this world in which 
the predominant spirituality that seems to be predominating in society is that which says that the computers have now joined us in this global consciousness that we are all part of the universal one. I mean, that is absolutely Buddhistic, Hinduistic, pagan. Um, that's what monism is all about, reducing everything to oneness. And Peter Jones and his research becomes absolutely crucial here. Uh, when I was with Dr. Jones uh, sometime, oh, last year, we sat down together and we were examining the Red Book by Carl Jung. And I told uh, Peter Jones, I said, Dr. Jones, you got half of it right. <laughs> and uh, I was talking about his books, you know, and his research and, uh, and his emphasis on pantheism and paganism and oneism. And he said, what do you mean half of it? I said, the other half is the technological singularity. That doesn't appear anywhere in his books. And I said, that's the part you're missing because that's going to be a crucial component to all of this. Panantheism is the idea that man and uh, that man and God are sort of interdependent, that God needs us as much as we need him. And so both of those views are sub-biblical, <laughs> Right when you consider a true creator and creature distinction, and it becomes absolutely fundamental to maintain this idea that God is absolutely transcendent, that he is beyond us, above us, other than us. He is other than what we are. And, um, and so I think uh, that becomes part of the equation. So I don't know if that gets at this whole concept of worship that you're thinking, um, but creator creature relation, creator creature distinction. That's what comes prominently to my mind. Yeah. There's, there's one more big topic that I want to pull in here because it often gets drawn in when you're talking about transhumanism and, and, and maybe we can barrel in a second question into that as to what do we do to prepare and think about this? But Often when you're in these conversations, I know you've, you've told me what you hear is or what other Christians in the Christian community, whether they're using the word transhumanism or not, there tends to be this question of what does this have to do with the mark of the beast that you read about in Revelation? And you could probably go on for a long time about this. Can you just help give a, a, a answer for how we'd even process that? that question and how we should be thinking about that. And then from there, just as we start to wind down and close this episode, what can we do to prepare for more of what we just talked about for the past 45 minutes or so? So if you can kick it off in that order, I think it'd be helpful. Oh boy. Well, um, what does this have to do with the mark of the beast? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, uh, I guess the, my official answer is, I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't speculate. I think it is an obvious speculation, a natural speculation, that we have entered a time, Ryan, that for the first time in human history, we have instantaneous access to everything. We don't 
We don't need to wait like in the ancient world for news of an event to travel around the globe or to travel across the sea to get to us, to inform us about developments that are going on in another country or with another, uh, uh, you know, another empire or something like that. Technology has given us an instantaneous mirror to ourselves. And man is now able to see what it is. And the reason that's important is because now I think we're able to do the kind of universal and cosmic reflection of the human race that wasn't possible that wasn't, we just weren't capable of it in the past like we are now. Um, and, and what does the mirror of technology tell us? It tells us that the world is now so inextricably connected along socioeconomic lines and political, geopolitical lines, right? That there is a network and interconnectedness an interface in place uh, globally and universally speaking where something like the universal commerce of mankind can actually have a global universal and um, comprehensive impact upon every person in the modern world. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that we can envision a time coming in the near future, let's say, where a device is created very, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it's a, a, a microchip or something else, where very easily every transaction of human beings not only can be traced, but can regulate what human beings are able to do. And I think we see miniature, miniature examples of that. I don't know, miniature but significant examples of that in a place like China, where right now the Chinese government, right? Here we are, 2002 or 2022, where right now the Chinese government has just forced its citizens in certain regions of China to wear a bracelet, mandatory bracelet that tracks their health and that tracks their uh their whereabouts where they are and of course will inevitably begin to track their their financial transactions i mean that's where it's all going and china is very advanced in this sort of tyrannical kind of overlording you know over its citizens uh, the social credit score kind of phenomenon where uh, Chinese citizens uh, have to, um, they have to uh, comply with the government at certain fundamental levels in order for the government to give you a high enough credit score where you're able to do the kind of things that you want to do, like buy a home or travel. I've seen entire documentaries on this where a person cannot buy a home, they can't fly on a plane, they can't get on a train unless they have a high enough credit score. And if they don't have a high enough credit score, they have to immediately go to a government building where they have to receive instructions on how to, how to elevate that credit score by certain communal community services that they have to perform. I mean, it's really wild. Um, 
but but so obviously can the does the technology exist today uh let's say for a literal application of something like the mark of the beast bare minimum that that ties you into a global economic system that tracks every transaction in the modern world absolutely um this brings in your theology of the book of revelation and the way that i've put it before ryan you you may have heard me say this is that in the end what we see in revelation is not that everyone has the same religion but that all the religions are united against the one religion true religion the one true religion and so that becomes um that becomes something very serious uh, that we need to look at as well. Plenty to unpack there. I probably, I probably sent you on a, on a rabbit trail uh, that you can go a rabbit hole. They can go much. I much know, but that, we'll, we'll think about that one. Well, for you sent me on a controversial rabbit trail. That's for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Well, real quick, if you could just briefly summarize, where does someone go from here? Because this has been such a heavy topic. And I think people might just have that question in mind. What on earth do I do with this information? Where do I go? What are next steps? So if you could just briefly summarize that for us and uh, give people a jumping off point. Well, I would just say, uh, I would just say, Ryan, that one thing um, I have to just kind of communicate right up front uh, is that my doctrine of eschatology becomes very important here mm-hmm. because what we're, I believe, what we're seeing take shape before our very eyes, and as long as it extends out into the future, is I think we're seeing a Babylite religion, a Babylite religion where things are going to develop increasingly along the lines of a universal movement that comes together all the all the different peoples and nations of the world sort of come together in this antichrist system so then i would definitely be interpreting revelation 17 and 18 along the lines of a future cosmic antichrist system uh, to come and if and if we believe that if we if we believe that what's going on right now is sort of laid out for us in the pages of scripture in terms of the, the, the theme and the idea, the motif, the repeated pattern of Babel and then Sodom and Gomorrah and then Egypt and then Babylon and those kinds of repetitions of these cosmic crisis in scripture, then we have the assurance that these antichrist crisis, like they were all put down in the same way that Babel was destroyed and the people were dispersed, in the same way that ancient Babylon was thrown down and had fallen and fallen, in that same way, we are assured in Revelation 17 and 19 that the Babylon system will fall. But I believe that fall will coincide. Uh, it will coincide with the return of Jesus Christ. And so I would say for people, let this give you this glorious incentive to revitalize within you the monumental hope of the resurre- of the of the second coming of Jesus, uh, and and there, there that there is something so apostolic about that that we join with the apostles, right, in having this hope, where our hope is in nothing less. We we, we don't just need a renovated Earth. We don't just need an Earth with better politics. We don't just need a more humane earth or an earth with better weather. 
that's not what we want. That's not what we need. That's not our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope resides in the appearance of the Son of God, as John tells us. And when he appears, he will transform our lowly bodies in conformity to the, 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 to the, uh, the, the body of his own power and his own glory, his own resurrection. And so in one sense, uh, in one sense, this is an eschatological hope that where we, uh, hold on more than ever, we maintain our hope in the promises of God. We'd better understand who God is. We better understand the creator and creature distinction. We had better develop a much better, much more robust understanding of the image of God. And I think, Ryan, we'll probably have to spend an entire episode just talking about the Imago Dei. And, 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 if, and if I can give you maybe one last piece of advice, this may, it may sound like what I'm doing right now is giving you advice that's not practical, that's not tangible, that's giving you advice that where I'm not telling you to become a doomsday prepper, and I'm not. But maybe the very last piece of advice that I would have for us is to say that we need to begin once again to develop a robust doctrine of heaven. Because I think heaven, sadly enough, has faded the fascination and imagination of the people of God, where we have stopped fantasizing about heaven and heaven's glories and heaven's beauties and heaven's treasures. And yet, I can probably list a dozen verses off the top of my head where the vision of the people of God is ordered to the heavenly realms. That is not being hyper-spiritual. That is not being earthly, uh, uh, useless for earthly good. As you've heard people say, you're you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. That's heresy. I would say that's utter heresy. Uh, We are instructed directly by the Apostle Paul, for example, in Colossians chapter 3, that we are to set our minds, what? Not on the things of the earth, but on the things above, where Christ is seated. And where is Christ seated? But in the heavenly realms, in the presently veiled realm of glory, the dwelling, the habitation of angels. That's where we need to set our minds. So those are just a few areas of focus that I think will encourage us as we look at something so daunting as a transhumanist future that we're looking at and the uncertainty, at least for us, we're just finite creatures. We don't know the beginning from the end. And certainly we don't know what God has ordained for our generation. We don't know. It's like somebody asked me, how much of this is God going to really allow to happen? How much of this are we going to really be allowed to see? And the answer to that is, I don't know. But one thing is for certain, um, you know, uh, these, these are not just uh, hyper-spiritual maxims. This is our worldview. This is our hope. And so I hope that people can appreciate um, some, at least some of those ideas in terms of things that will keep us grounded uh, in a world that is losing its grip on reality itself. Hmm. What a what a heavy topic today. I, I really like that. I think just to even close this out and compound what you're saying on the those fancy quotes. You're you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good earth, earthly good. The only way you can actually do true good on the earth is to be heavenly minded in Christ, you know, 
perpetuating going out and into the world and, and preaching the gospel. So you must be heavenly minded, the wisdom from above, not the wisdom from, from below as you read about in James. So, um, I think, I think these topics fit into that, that wisdom from above. Right. And I know it was talking about scripture, but having this conversation in the context of scripture and knowing scripture, I think, I think even though it's a heavy topic, it does help us unpack things even more. And I mean, with the Bible, that's how we make sense of it all. So what a great episode, uh, very informative. We'll have to do more on this. And I think, I think we can both say the next episode, we'll figure out what it is that we want to drill down to even further. So, um, anything that you'd want to close with before we end today? Oh boy. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just think that, um, that we can just get informed, uh, that we can start having these conversations. And really, if you're a pastor, you need to really be doing your research in this area. Um, so that the young people in your church don't sneak up on you with transhumanist ideas uh, for which you have no answers. And so I think we need to really prepare for the onslaught of aggressive technology coming our way and how the Christian worldview not only responds, but how does the Christian worldview process this in a way that's pleasing to God? So yeah, that's what I would say is get equipped, get prepared to have an answer. Amazing. Thank you everyone for joining us. We'll see you next time.